Welcome to Old Books with Grace. I'm Dr. Grace Hammond. You might already recognize that one of the weaknesses of this podcast, of Old Books with Grace, is that it really mostly focuses on old books in the English language, which obviously limits things a good deal. My guest today remedies that just the tiniest bit. Today, Burl Hornacek chats with me about pre-19th century Christian poetry from other parts of the world, the non-Anglophone parts, that he collected in a lovely volume from Cascade Books called To Heaven's Rim. Burl Hornacek is a Canadian high school teacher, poet, translator, and editor. He was born in Saskatoon and grew up near Edmonton. He studied ancient Near Eastern studies at the University of Toronto and creative writing at the University of Alberta with Nobel Prize winner Derek Walcott. He currently lives near Winnipeg with his wife and two kids. Welcome to Old Books with Grace. I'm so excited that you're here with me today, Burl. Well, I really appreciate the, the opportunity to talk about uh, this anthology and the, the poets that are in it. So, um, again, thank you very much. I always start with two get-to-know-you questions on Old Books with Grace. Um, and so the first is, who is your favorite author or book from more than 50 years ago, which I know will be very hard for you, given your very wide range of interest. Um, but give it a shot. Um, I have a real affection for um, Charles, uh, the French poet Charles Baudelaire. Oh. And um, I think his, his collection of poet, uh, poems, the, uh, the, the Flowers of Evil, is uh, probably my favorite uh, uh, poetry collection of all time. And uh, that's something that I just really... Um, I I love his what I what I call his catastrophic wit. Um, he has a he just has a um, just absolutely devastating way of of, of expressing things, and uh, um, he's also got a real uh, I would say a, a religious sensibility. But um, back when I was um, not so sure of my uh, my own faith, um, I always found his. Um, you know, just his take on things uh, a little bit comforting. I think I've moved on from where he was, but uh, um, I always appreciate that. And uh, um, his, his deep appreciation of, of beauty and um, he, he has a, he has a very elevated way of looking things. You know, he's, he's always looking up in a lot of, you know, he's looking down sometimes too, but he's looking <laughs> up a lot of the times as well. That's a great response. Uh, I first read Baudelaire in my master's program and really reading him mainly because of his influence on some like very, uh, very big 20th century poets in English. Um, Cause my background in French poetry is incredibly and sadly limited, but uh, yeah, Baudelaire, his writing is so powerful and potent. I feel like it's, yeah. it's like you read it in these small doses and you're like, I just need to sit with this for a minute and yeah. not, yeah. I'm, I am don't go too fast. That's a mistake. Um, so yeah, that's a yeah. a great reminder. I actually should 
return to him sometime. I, I haven't read him for a very long time. And that's bringing it back. Yeah. So secondly, then, which literary character do you most identify with and why? Um, literary character. Um, and this could be anything. This could be like children's literature, adult literature, whatever you please. Um, I don't know. I, I think I... I have a little bit of that um, sort of romantic identification with uh, with Hamlet, the the mopey teenager, <laughs> and so um, yeah, that's that's again um, probably similar to the my taste for bottle air is that uh, you know that uh, you know going around making uh, uh, speeches at least in my own head about uh, you know grumbling about things that are that are going on. <laughs> you know, I. That's really funny because there's definitely an affinity between Hamlet and Baudelaire. I feel like you're yeah. definitely making some very <laughs> yeah. strong connections here for yourself. Yeah, yeah. So I also think that Hamlet is I know, is the my favorite of Shakespeare's tragedies. So I, great choice. You know, I mean, yeah. he is a moody teenager. It's true. Yeah. But um, he also has some beautiful speeches. So yeah, yeah. Okay, so you've edited this uh, lovely anthology of world Christian poetry called To Heaven's Rim. Could you tell us a little bit about this collection and how you became interested in this project and this topic? Um, well, I'll, I think I'll kind of go back to the to the beginning and what interested me about uh, translation. And uh, I think it all began uh, when I was... You know, if if you're raised at all in any sort of religious uh, household or, or family, um, you're going to encounter different uh, translations of the Bible, mm -hmm. and so you're going to know you're going to be aware that there is such a thing as translation of them. That these can be very different, and so I think that was kind of something that um, you know was always there in the back of my mind. And you're a translator, right? That is what you that's, do as uh, um, one of your that's that one of the things today. that I do. Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. And um, uh, later on, as I went through university, I, I uh, encountered the work of um, Robert Alter, who was uh, known for his own translations of the Old Testament. Yes. And uh, his, um, you know, he tries to what his his way of uh, translating things is to bring out the literary qualities of mm. of the work that he's uh, translating and in, in and uh, you know trying to do that even more than say something like the the King James version of the Bible he's trying to you know kind of get at things that maybe the King James or the modern translations don't uh, don't bring forward and so um, that was again something that um, you know pointed me towards the idea of, of translation and bringing over literary qualities using that, uh, using translation. And then um, a third book that was very influential on me uh, was Harold Bloom's The, uh, the Western Canon, especially mm -hmm. the, um, the lists in the back where he gives his preference for different translations of, you know, ancient Greek literature or French literature or Spanish literature. And so again, uh, that um, just reminded me that you know there are better and worse versions of of translations. And mm -hmm. so um, 
I started reading, you know, through a lot of that list and uh, using the, the translations that he suggested. But then, you know, being kind of the, the curious person that I am, um, I started to investigate, you know, different ones or, you know, a new translation would come out and I'd kind of try it out. And so uh, I was I was reading a lot widely in literature from all sorts of different places around the world. Mm. And um, that was, uh, you know, I always like to compare, you know, different translations to see which ones that I particularly liked or, you know, if a particular passage was particularly well done by one person rather than another. And um, that didn't really have much to do with, I, I had no plans to create any sort of book like this, um, you know, for, for the long time. I was just reading all this stuff for the pleasure of it. And then uh, I, uh, my wife had um, uh, a spell in, at the University of Toronto. Uh, my wife is a, is a surgeon and she was going there for some, uh, for a fellowship, for some, for some additional training. And uh, I contacted a fellow called uh, D.S. Martin, who is the poetry editor for um, uh, Cascade and uh, Whippenstock out in uh, out of Oregon. So uh, Don um, lives near Toronto uh, in a suburb called Brampton. And uh, so I contacted him because I knew he was this, uh, this poetry editor. And he um, was doing a writing book, a writing, a writing group at his home. Uh, every month for Christian writers, and he invited me to come out and uh, and be a part of that. And he's also uh, he also runs a, uh, a a blog called Kingdom Poets, and every week he uh, posts a, a a a poem by a different Christian poet. Mm. And I noticed that um, most of these poets were writer were originally writing in English. Mm -hmm. There were a few that were not, but most of them, you know, there were hardly anybody from other languages. And so I started feeding him suggestions, you know, just kind of, um, you know, people that I had just randomly run across in my, in my reading. And then we started talking and eventually, uh, we said, well, why don't we do a book? And so, um, that's when I started seriously working on um, organizing this book. Um, I already had kind of an idea about some of the people I wanted to include, but uh, there there was some additional reading. I, you know, there there's some gaps that I wanted to to fill in as well. So I had to start, um, you know, doing a little bit of extra research. And you know, um, there were some writers as well that had never been translated, but I I knew of them, and so I had to do some work. Um, finding translators for for those works as well. Well, that really brings me to my next question for you um, related to what you've been saying, which is how did you go about the selection process for the for this book? Because world Christian poetry is such a capacious category. Um, yeah, and, yeah. and so you have so many uh -huh. options. I mean, and also, yeah. as you mentioned, the problem of translation, some of these folks are, I mean, I've been reading old books for a long time and a good deal of them I had never even heard of. So I was really excited. Yeah. yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, well, um, I, my main selection process was simply to find what I considered the best 
poets and the, and the best poems. And so that, that was the main uh, criteria. But of course, um, you know, you're going to, um, you know, you're going to have to make some judgments as to, uh, as to who, you know, who really is, is, is that good or is, is not. Um, so there were people that I had to, um, that I decided to, to leave out. Um, so I'll, I'll give an example of the, um, the Byzantine Greek poets that I included. Mm -hmm. So I included um, Romanos the Melodist. Um, he's generally considered the, the sort of the greatest of the Byzantine Greek uh, writers. And then as well, um, the two brothers, um, St. John of, the, of Damascus and his brother Cosmas of Myuma. Mm -hmm. And um, there was a couple of other um, I'm not sure if I, there's a couple, but there's at least one anon anonymous piece that I know of that uh, was the funeral hymn from the Orthodox uh, liturgy that I also included. And uh, but uh, there's a there's a writer that I kind of was really debating on whether I would include, and that's um, Saint Simeon, the new theologian. Mm. And um, I partly based it on my own judgment in reading translations, but I also um, uh, used the judgment of experts as well, who said that um, you know Saint Simeon is not quite as good as these other earlier poets, mm. and I felt you know I felt there were better poets that I could include from other languages, and so I left him out of the out of the out of the book. And, um, you know, I, I actually got a couple comments about from people was like, <laughs> where's, where's St. Simeon? <laughs> um, but that, you know, th those are the kind of judgment calls that you, you have to make. And, uh, you know, um, I thought the ones I picked were the, were the best. And that's generally goes along with the, uh, what the critics and scholars say as well. And so I'm, you know, I'm fairly comfortable with the, the decision I made, but that's kind of a, a little bit of the, the process that you go through, you know, you, you use your own judgment and taste, but you also kind of look at what some of the scholars and other people are saying. So in relation to that, did you have areas that you were more conversant in, excited about, and then you had to, you mentioned doing extra research to kind of uh, bulk up or add certain kinds of poetry or poetry from other places that maybe you knew less about what were yeah. the ones that were really familiar to you that you were excited about and then were there any that uh as you did research that were really surprising and fresh to you um well um obviously the um i would say definitely the spanish there's so much um i think the the number of poets who wrote in spanish is uh the largest grouping in the book Mm. So there, it's it's a really, um, you know, Spain really has a great uh, history of Christian um, poetry and Christian writing. Mm. And, uh, you know, um, so that was kind of one that I was quite excited about. Um, of course, um, Italy as well, you have Dante and Petrarch and, and some other writers there as well, uh, Michelangelo. Uh, so I was excited about. Uh, I was Italian. super interested to see Michelangelo <laughs> in there as a poet and not as yeah. an artist. That I did not know that. That was a fun surprise as I opened it up. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, 
he's he's a very well he's he's very well regarded as an Italian poet, but um, I think it it did take a long time for people to start paying attention to his poetry because of all the other things that are so you know attention grabbing. You know, yeah. um, what a so, talented person! Yeah, it's kind of yeah. wild. <laughs> well, I think um, as he got older, I think. Um, the physical demands of doing things like sculpture and, and stuff, uh, or, you know, even doing those, you know, big paintings on the Sistine Chapel, um, that was less available to him. So he turned to poetry more in his later life. Interesting. Yeah. Oh. Wow. There you go. So, and, uh, oh yeah, yeah no, you, keep going. Uh, as far as the, the surprising ones, um, well, there's languages such as uh, I knew I really knew nothing about, say, Hungarian poetry. Mm. And uh, so that would be uh, an example. I have a fellow, uh, Balassi. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his name correctly. Uh, another really um, great one is uh, uh, Marko Marulic from uh, Croatia. Mm. And uh, his poetry, uh, it's a... Um, it's a biblical epic. It's well. It's based on the uh, the, the story of Judith from the mm. the apocrypha, mm -hmm. um, but it's quite different from a lot of you know biblical epics that you'd find, like from say John Milton or, or somebody like that. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's very comedic, and I I found that was a nice addition to oh. the to the um, to the anthologies. It kind of showed a. Uh, yeah, it's not, you know, religious poetry can be a little bit uh, serious a lot of the times. There's, you know, there's not a lot of um, knockabout comedy, um, you know, in, in, in much of the book. But I, I really enjoyed being able to include that as part of, uh, as part of the, the anthology. And that's so refreshing because uh, I wonder how much of our approach to reading scripture is really inflected by these very high traditions, very, very mm -hmm. serious poetic traditions like Paradise Lost, where, yeah. you know, Milton is consciously styling himself after sort of a high epic form of um, Greek and Roman poetry and to meet comedy in in the in a scriptural retelling in poetics. That makes me think, oh, I wonder um, how I've been you know, reading seriousness into, yeah. into scripture inflected by my reading of Milton or whoever, whereas yeah, if I'm yeah. reading more comedic retellings, maybe I'll notice some comedy that I've been missing. Um, yeah. Um, well, I'll, I'll give an example uh, from, you know, the, the story of David. Um, uh, there's this, there's the famous story of where King Saul um, goes into a cave and as a child, I was told, always told that, you know, King Saul went into the, to the cave. And the, and the Hebrew phrase exactly is to cover his feet. But I was told he was going to, into the cave to have a little bit of a nap or something. Yeah. And, you know, there's King David and all his men surrounding um, King Saul in, in the cave. And what uh, cover your feet actually means is to uh, go to the washroom. <laughs> so... King Saul is in the middle of this cave and he's uh, doing his business and everybody else is off in the shadows around the sh sh cave watching him. Uh -huh. And they have this opportunity to, you know, 
kill him in the most undignified right. spot possible. Um, and then they, they watch him finish up and then they watch him leave. And uh, so that's the biblical story. And there's, there's a lot of moments like that in the biblical narrative that we don't, um, uh, that we, there's these, you know, as you say, literary and interpretive traditions that have kind of uh, glossed over some of the, the humor that's there. Yeah, and the very the very human element of which humor so often helps us to yeah. to see the human the humanity and the uh, you know it, that they're not always like high tales of combat, but actually real people doing real things like defecating in a yeah. cave. <laughs> where you're yeah, like, oh yeah. my gosh, okay, um, yeah. yeah, that's so interesting, and and it relates to one of my deep interests, which is how what we read out of scripture about scripture reads back onto it, uh, both for good and for bad. And so that's fascinating. Okay. So a lot of the poets that you are, that you present to us uh, in their various translations in this collection have been historically overlooked for a really long time, at least in the English speaking world, maybe not so much in their countries of origin. Um, why do you think that is? Are there other factors than just the, sort of the difficulty of translation, or is it really translation? Um, well, um, I think there, there's a few things that I've kind of thought about uh, for reasons why, and uh, one of them, and I'm and I'm really not sure exactly why this is the case, but. Um, in Latin and Greek literature, uh, there seems to be a strong preference for what you might call the classical period, um, mm-hmm. where you have, you know, Virgil and Horace and and all of the the writers in that era of mm-hmm. uh, of ancient Rome. And uh, there's been a neglect of both writers from late antiquity and all the way up through the Latin writers in the Middle Ages. So uh, I'm not exactly sure why that is. Uh, there's a somewhat similar uh, situation with regards to Greek, where the Byzantine writers, the Byzantine poets, are not um, nearly as well known. And I'm I'm not entirely sure why exactly that is. Um, I. Some people have kind of said it's a little bit of an anti-Catholic bias, but I'm not really sure that that, um, you know, it seems to be just as strong in Catholic countries as it does in, you know, Protestant countries like England or um, America. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not really sure about that. And it's also, does that doesn't really explain what's going on with the, with the Greek writers either. Do you think um, that I, it's related to, to uh, and I, I don't know, I'm spitballing, but... It's interesting because as a medievalist, um, I see this, uh, this, it, it is part of that, uh, Renaissance idea of like, oh, the classical, uh, yeah. Latinists and Greek scholars are, you know, that's a purer form of, yeah. of the yeah. language. So then they go back and all this medieval stuff, they totally ignore or denigrate because they're like, this is not a you know, a quote unquote pure Latin yeah. or a pure Greek. Is it, do you think it's part of that same 
um, bias by by early modern scholars that just sort of weirdly lingers on in the present age? Or or what do you think about that? I think I think that probably does have something to do with it. Uh, yeah, you know, people like uh, Petrarch, uh, you know, sure. denigrated the uh, the medieval, and um, you know, perhaps even that spilled over into the early modern. Uh, Latins or the uh, sorry the late antiquity the Latin writers in late antiquity, um, but you know it's kind of a bit of a mystery, and I, I you know some scholars should do a, a fuller investigation as to why why that might be interesting. Um, but but I do think that that Renaissance attitude probably uh, it lingers to this day. Yeah, yeah, that's super interesting, and and uh, and then leads to a neglect. I of some folks that are really worth attending to yeah, as you point yeah. out. Yeah. Um, I will say that some of the, uh, the writers, um, you know, uh, Prudentius or um, uh, Venantius, uh, I'm probably pronouncing these terribly, but Venantius, Fortunatus, um, some of those were preserved in the Latin liturgy. So various hymns have mm. been um, carried forward. Uh, but, you know, for the most part, most of their work has been ignored. So mm. aside from a few pieces that made it in uh, and, and were used as liturgy, uh, the, the rest was kind of ignored. Interesting. Well, and you point, you kind of mentioned earlier, but um, you, you point out that the, that there's so much Spanish poetry that is really beautiful and accomplished that has been ignored or neglected by, by the anglophone portion of the world, and and is, do you you think that's more due to an anti-Catholic bias in Protestant countries than some um, of the Greek Orthodox stuff that you mentioned? Yeah, I think I think that really, um, I think that is the case that uh, there was a, um, you know, and. Up until probably the the 19th century, and then even more so in the 20th century, I think there was a strong bias against Spanish and and uh, well Spanish and Catholic literature within uh, within England at the time. Yeah, yeah. and uh, so I think that that is a part of it. Um, you know, there there have always been you know exceptions. Uh, you know, like the, the novel Don Quixote. Yes, um, always kind of made it through. Um, and as well, I think, uh, but Don Quixote is a novel. And, and things work easy. differently with novels, I do yes. think. <laughs> Especially for translation. I mean, yes. it's, it's, a lot, uh, it's a lot easier to translate a novel. Um, I know, you know maybe some translators of novels may uh, bristle at that, but I think translating poetry is, is more difficult. And, uh, you know, if any sort of obstacle... Um, uh, has more of an effect on, on the transmission of poetry than than on fiction. That makes sense to me because in fiction, uh, such a huge part of of fiction is, and obviously fiction's way more than this, but a huge part of it is just plot. And plot seems easier to translate, like people, yeah. places, things, happenings, than the meter and the sort of. El- more elusive imagery in poetry. Mm-hmm. Not that novels don't have that too. Um, the, the, you know, all the uh, sort of elusive quality of language and elusive with an A, all the illusions and all that. But, mm-hmm. but, um, 
that all seems very heightened in poetry compared to novels. And so yeah, that makes yeah. sense about translation being a very different project from one to the yeah, other. Yeah. And, but, uh, you know, even, even with someone like Dante, um, he wasn't really, uh, you know, he was known and respected, but uh, translation of Dante really didn't also get going until the, the 19th century. Um, or maybe even the you know, late uh, 18th century, but, you know, in, in, around that time. Um, so definitely earlier than, the, than some of the Spanish stuff, but, you know, even a figure like Dante, um, you know, poetry is, is, just takes a longer time to be, to, to be translated properly and, and brought over to a new language. Hmm. So um, now that we've been talking about all these poems that, uh, have been traditionally more difficult to track down. What poets or poems in particular do you think, as the compiler of this anthology, do you think that people really should pay attention to in our context of the 21st century? Are there any voices that you came across that you're like, oh, this person is really speaking to us right now? Or if you had to tell the listeners of Old Books with Grace, look, you must read so-and-so, who would you tell them and why? Um, well, one of the uh, one of the groups of writers I think would be a lot of the uh, older Eastern Orthodox writers, mm. um, such as uh, Romanos or Saint John of Damascus or Cosmos of uh, Mayuma, and I think um, those um, they have a a very um, symbolic and uh, archetypal way of reading mm. the, the the scriptures, and so um, I think that's kind of something that we we need to to regain uh, in our modern world, and, and just to to uh, you know not just focus on the scripture as say a you know a, a purely historical document that mm. it's got these larger spiritual meanings. And uh, I, I kind of find that, um, you know, even though it's nice to, you know, read a scholarly work on typology, um, when you see it as part of a, a poem, I think it has a, a larger uh, resonance. And, and many of these things are, are designed to be uh, part of, of liturgy as well. And I think it would be, um, you know, I think it would be good to include some of these works. Uh, and some of them are already a part of the uh, um, Eastern Orthodox liturgies, but uh, uh, perhaps um, those could be incorporated uh, in certain circumstances into uh, other liturgies in, in English. I love that. And that's such a great answer. Something I've been thinking a lot about lately is how much difficulty we have with uh with figurative language or allegorical reading, or uh, we're just so we so want uh, the literal meaning just shaken out immediately right away. And that's understandable. Um, But I think the slowing down and paying attention to these larger themes and, and these images that you have to really let work on your heart, they're not immediate. They're not going to give you something right away. You have to be patient and wait with them. Uh, that's mm-hmm. something we do need right now. I think very, very yeah. much. Yeah. So, um, 
something that was exciting to me as I was reading is that I'm a huge fan of 17th century English poetry. So folks like Dunn, Herbert Vaughn, Crayshaw, Trahern, all those guys. And it was um, really fun for me to discover as I was reading this book that there's actually a lot of really wonderful 17th century poetry written in different parts of the world. Yeah. And somebody who I had never heard of that I found myself very fascinated by um, was the poetry and the story of Wu Li, who was a Chinese poet mm-hmm. of the 17th century. Could you tell us a little bit more about his life and his context? And um, that was somebody I'd never heard of before, and I was just fascinated. Well, um, he was a... Um, uh, He's mainly known in China as a landscape painter. And he's, he's again, somewhat like uh, Michelangelo. Um, he's, uh, that's, that's where he, um, you know, among most Chinese people, that's, that's what they know him as. And um, I think uh, in China, um, they didn't really know exactly what to do with his poetry because uh, because of all the, the Christian themes in it. Uh, now, um, with a lot of people in China in that area or in that era, um, we don't have as many bio- biographical details as we would like. Uh, but we do know that um, he ended up going off to, I believe it was Macau, to the Jesuit seminary there. And he, uh, uh, this was, I, I think people believe this was later in his life after he was already established as a, as a painter. So um, he has a conversion and he goes off to Macau to study, to become a, a priest. And uh, then he comes back to, to China and he, and he spends the rest of his life as a village priest um, and, and, and missionary. And so it's, it's quite the, you know, the life story. I, I don't know, again, um, with poets of that era and, and artists of that era, we don't have all the biographical, you know, information as to when exactly he was writing his, his poems and, and, and how exactly that all, all fit together. But, uh, you know, it's quite the, the fascinating story of this, you know, painter who somehow encounters the, the gospel and converts and, starts writing Christian poetry in China. Well, it just, it was so uh, incredible to read his his poetry in, in translation, obviously, um, and and think, oh, I had no idea that there was a, um, that there was this Chinese landscape painter who encountered Jesuits and converted and then became a priest of his own doing poetry in the 17th century, I mean, that just yeah. is not, it speaks to my sort of uh, provincialism in in being in an English department, not knowing this broad scale um, thing, things going mm-hmm. on in other parts of the world. And I was just, I thought that was fascinating. Um, so we're getting close to the end of our, of our time together, but I wanted to ask you if there was uh, a poem that you would like to read aloud to listeners to share with us and, and give us a little bit of context on it. Um, well, 
I think, why don't we end with um, some of Wu Li's poetry? And uh, I'm going to make a, a couple of remarks is that uh, uh, what, what you see in, in Wu Li's poetry is that he's adapting a lot of Chinese cultural um, images and ideas and, and bringing them into, into Christianity. And I, and I don't think it's, it's not really a, um, it's not syncretism. He's not really distorting the faith, but he's definitely bringing some of these, these concepts and, and, I, and images into, into the new faith. And so uh, I think I'll start off with uh, um, section two, and I'll, I'll read a little bit here. So before the firmament was ever formed or any foundation laid, I there hovered the judge of the world, prepared for the last days. This single man from his five wounds poured every drop of blood. A myriad nations gave their hearts to the wonder of the cross. The heavenly gates now have a ladder leading to their peace. Demonic spirits lack any art to insinuate deception. So again, you know, you see the, the you know, the, the idea of heavenly gates, the ladder, um, those things are, I think, part of um, Christianity, but we don't, if we're in a European context, we don't necessarily see them in exactly the way that uh, that someone from, from China would. Uh, I'll read one more um, that was beautiful. Uh, passage here. Yeah. And uh, this is section six from his, um, it's, a, it's a long sequence called um, Singing of the Source. Mm. Um, so this is uh, section six of the same poem. So by nature, I have always felt quite close to the way when done with chanting my new poems. I always concentrate my spirit. Prior to death, who believes in the joy of the land of heaven? After the end, then comes amazement of the truth of the fires of hell. The achievements and fame of this ephemeral world, footprints of geese on snow. Mm. This body, this shell in a lifetime of toil, dust beneath horses hoofs and what is more the flowing of time presses man so fast let us plan to ask carefully about the ford that lead, leads us to the true source so um again talk of uh, things like uh, the way um uh, or the source um those things you know you do hear some of the, that language in western christianity but it's not brought to the forefront as much as yeah. as as someone uh, might from a from a different tradition and i think that uh, you know that's highlighted in his in his poetry thank you for sharing that that was just beautiful um i i'm really excited to read more of wu li because uh, what an exciting treat to find more 17th century poets to love from different cultural contexts yeah, yeah. so I'm going to end with asking if people are interested in finding out more about what you're up to, where can they find you online? Um, I think probably the best place is, uh, is on uh, Twitter or X as it's called now. Um, <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> and it's uh, um, uh, my Twitter handle is just uh, at Burl Hornacek, all one word. And uh, that should be um, relatively easy to find. Um, yeah, I don't really have any other uh, accounts or anything uh, available. Um, you can find my uh, 
Um, my book is available from the publisher or it's available on places like Amazon or other places as well. So, yeah, that's probably the, most of the best places to uh, get a hold of the, the book and to get in contact with me. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Burl, for coming on and chatting about translation and about all of these poets that we should be paying attention to here in our English-speaking context. Well, thank you so much for having me, and thanks for your interest. And uh, uh, um, yeah, that's uh, it's been. I think it's been a good conversation. Thanks again for listening to Old Books with Grace. If you are looking for a great Christmas present for your historically and spiritually minded friends and family, don't forget to check out my new book, Jesus Through Medieval Eyes, Beholding Christ with the Artists, Mystics, and Theologians of the Middle Ages. And I wrote it specifically for curious-minded people outside of academia. If you are worried that it might be too big of a bite for you, it's not. Um, And if you're just interested in finding out more of what I'm up to, you can look at my Substack, Medievalish with Grace Hammond, where you get smaller doses of medieval and early modern goodies that I like to share with my followers monthly. Or you can check out Instagram at Old Books with Grace or Twitter at Grace Hammond PhD. Thanks again for listening. Stay tuned as the Advent series begins in the next few weeks. Oh,